I'd like to pray with you before we start. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to open up your holy word. We know that all the opinions of men, our own thoughts, our conclusions about things in life, all of those will pass away one day, but your word stands forever. And Father, I pray that as we live throughout our lives that we would more and more seek to adopt our thinking, our way of thinking, our opinions, our conclusions about life from your word. Help us, Lord, to be students of it, rightly dividing your word, not needing to be ashamed. For we know that it is your word that will be our judge in the end. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and the bar by which we will be measured is the word of God. And Father, I just ask that as we go through the scriptures this morning, that you would teach us, help us to learn what we need to learn, and then apply what we need to apply in life. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes. We missed that, didn't we? Uh, children in, did you say that? No, I said yes, I missed it. Oh, okay. Yep, uh, if you didn't leave already, kids, you are welcome to be dismissed back to your classes. That would be the children from first through third grades in Children's Church. At the beginning of the school year, I challenged both the staff at the school and the staff here at the church to pursue excellence in life. It's been a theme that we have brought up uh, throughout the school year and wanted to share some of those thoughts with you this morning. Uh, the scripture abounds with the call to us as believers to excel. You read a little bit of it in the, in the scripture reading this morning. Uh, Paul said to the Thessalonians, I have no need to write to you about the love that you have for the brethren because you're doing a good job, but I want you to excel in it even more. And we know that in this life, you can never reach a perfect state in anything. Maybe we think we can come close in some things, but I believe wholeheartedly that just because of the nature of the cursed world in which we live and the sinful state of our own hearts that we'll, we'll never be able to fully attain in any area of life that God has given to us until that sinful nature is gone or until the world itself has been redeemed and that we are glorified with God. And that call to excel is centered mostly around our character as a Christian. What we do, how we think, what we say, and what the internal part of us is doing in our heart. Our spiritual maturity, how, how do you mark somebody as a, as a mature Christian? Isn't it their attitude? Isn't it how they respond to life? Isn't it the decisions that they have made and the attitude with which they make those decisions? Even as you read the commands in the New Testament, which are many, oftentimes those commands are coupled with an attitude check. So for example, the, the scriptures in the New Testament tell us to prefer one another. We do that. But it says to prefer one another in honor, which has to do with our attitude and how we prefer one another. The scriptures are loaded with commands to love, and yet there are qualifications even as to how we are to love. Let love be without hypocrisy, it says, which has to do with our attitude and our character on the inside. Um, First, I mean, uh, Galatians chapter 6 says that if a man is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. But it doesn't end there. It says restore such a one in a spirit of 
meekness, and gentleness, looking to yourselves lest you fall in the same way that the person has fallen. And so all, all through the New Testament, we have these commands that are coupled with attitude checks. We're to do things according to the word of God. And really, I don't think any progress can be made in our lives, spiritually speaking, unless we are seeking this idea of excelling, growing, abounding, doing more, and not just staying with the status quo. I think that's why Jesus Christ saved us, so that we could become more and more conformed to his image, and that our lives more and more as we live them out will reflect the glory of God and not just our own personal lives. I'd like to take you through a number of scriptures this morning. This is a rather topical study, and so we're going to be going back and forth, back and forth uh, to many verses. So you can get your electric fingers out and get ready for that. But we're going to take the time to read them. And uh, I know there's a danger when you don't preach expositionally. I'm not taking any one passage and just going through it. Um, there's a danger of taking things out of context. I've tried not to do that uh, as we look at these different verses. Uh, but just to really just show the theme in the scripture of excellence and pursuing excellence as a matter of course for us in our Christian lives. So let's begin with Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10. Reads, whatever your hand finds to do, verily, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Essentially, we have a beginning and an ending time in this life. Our lives are ordained by God. We have so many days. And so whatever you do with that time, do it with all your might. Do it with your soul and your heart because we're not going to live forever. Let's flip over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. And as we read, I would like you to notice the adjectives that are related to the commands or the commands themselves as they relate to excelling or abounding. That's really where we're going to land this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's a lot packed in those three little verses. We'll look at them a little bit later. But again, notice the call that Paul is giving to this church. Let your love, don't let it stagnate. Don't let it just stay on par. Make it increase. Make it abound. Make it grow so that you may approve things that are excellent. And one day we will give an account of those things talks about the day of Christ at the end of verse 10, and that we may be found to be sincere and blameless in these things, because our ultimate judge is him. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is just a quick overview of some verses in the both Old and New Testaments that speak of this idea of excelling. 
Now in first, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 8, the context here is giving. And Paul is writing to the church and, and uh, exhorting them to give generously, to not hold back, to give sacrificially. And he gave some examples of that. And when he comes to chap- chapter 8, verse 7, he says, Just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness. So again, there were some things about this the life of this church that were commendable. And he says that you're already abounding in these things in your faith, in your utterance, and as you, as you spread the word of God and you talk to people about God, that, that's commendable. You're abounding in that. You're abounding in your knowledge of God and in your earnestness or eagerness and in the love we inspired in you. And then he says, see to it that you also abound in this gracious work which was their giving. And so there was, you know, and that's probably true of us, not giving per se, but, you know, we may get to a point where we think, you know, we're we're doing great. We're doing pretty good. Look at all the good things. I I go to church every single week. I'm doing great with my finances. I'm I'm loving my wife the way that I should. But I can can guarantee you, because it's true in my life, and I would say it's true in your life as well, we we never arrive. There's always more to be done. There's always a better step to take. There's always another decision to make in the Christian life because we're hampered right now with this sin. And I think if we get to that point in our minds where we think we have arrived at a, at a place of equilibrium where we don't need to change anything else, that we're deceiving ourselves because the heart is deceitful and it's wicked, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And these ideas, I think, promote the idea that we're not going to arrive in this life, so let's just keep excelling and keep going. And in this case, in the Corinthians' life, it, was, it had to do with um, supporting the work of the Lord financially. And that was something, they were doing a, a lot of good things in other parts of their, their ministry and their lives, but here was one that needed some help and some work, and so excel even more in that. First Thessalonians 3, let's turn there. Verse 12 and 13. Kind of a prayer that he's making as he writes to them. He says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Is that even possible for us to be unblameable and establish our hearts in holiness before God? That almost seems like a pie-in-the-sky dream for us as we live. I don't think so. I think as we allow the Spirit of God to work in our lives, to change us, to sanctify us, to mold us into what he wants us to be, we can approach these things. And again, we're not going to reach it but if we, if we don't have this as a goal, then we're not even going to try. I'd like you to turn, uh, it's actually on the same page there, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is what we just read uh, together as a congregation. I don't know if you noted those words in verse 1 and verse 10. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord, or in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk, and to please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. And here again, he's praising them for the way that they walked. 
He says, you've heard instruction from us. And then in the, in the parentheses in that sentence, he says, that's what you're doing. You're walking as we instructed you. That is good. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you need to do more. You need to excel more in this walk. Verse 10, he says, for in, and again, indeed, you do practice it. Practice what? The love uh, that we taught you to love one another. You're practicing it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But, here it is again, we urge you, we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, probably most of you could quote this right off the top of your head. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, finish it for me. Do all to the glory of God. Everything, the little things and the big things, all of our life is designed by God to bring glory to him. And we'll, we'll go through these verses again in a little bit to explain them in a little deeper way. And then really for me, the capstone of all this, the, the command that kind of encompasses all of these these ideas, Matthew chapter 23, which Jesus said was the greatest command, verses 37 and 38. Nope, it uh, should be 22, sorry. Chapter 22, verses 37 and 38. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And uh, let me take a little rabbit trail with you just for a minute. This is, this is for free. I didn't plan this. But if you stop and you look at every command in the New Testament, everything that God tells us to do, go through the Ten Commandments. You can do this as an exercise on your own. All of the commands can be understood fully if you understand them in the context of love. Every command that we have, whether it's a civil command to obey the laws of our government and the laws of our community, or whether it's a moral command that God gives to us in relationship to himself, or if it's a, a moral command that God gives to us in relationship to each other, all of them can be rightly understood and, and more fully understood when we see it in the context of love. That's why Jesus said, this is the great and foremost command. There is no other command like this. Because if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, it affects everything you do. Everything. If this is first. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. If you love God, are you going to have any other gods before him? No. Of course not. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, you're not going to put anything in front of him. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Why would you do that to somebody that you love? It makes no sense. If you truly love God, you're not going to trivialize his name. You're not going to swear by his name. You're not going to trud or tread on his name. You're going to lift it up. You're going to proclaim it. You're going to love it. And tell other people about it. That's what love does. If you love your husband or your wife, are you going to talk bad about them? No, you won't. You will praise them. You will bring other people to see them like you see them. 
What's the third command? It's slipping my mind. Graven images. Shall make no graven images. And once again, if we understand who God is, that he is a spirit, he's not a physical being, he's the creator of all, why are we going to do that? Why are we, we going to do something he asked us not to do? And then you go down the rest of the commands. Honor your father and mother. What would a loving son or daughter do for their parents? Would, it not, would honor not just be a natural thing if love was there? Thou shalt not steal. If you love your neighbor as yourself, why in the world are you taking his stuff? It makes no sense in the context of love. These laws become just alive to us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So we go back to this idea of excelling, of abounding, of doing more. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, you cannot help but do this. You, your life will be excelling. Your life will be changing. Your life will be growing and changing more and more into the image of Jesus Christ every day. So it's clear, I think, from these verses alone that this is what God wants us to do, both in our inward character and in our outward deeds and how we do things. How can we love God with all of our heart without it? Now, as I begin here, I'd like to make a distinction uh, about what it means to pursue excellence, because I think there are some ideas that are false and some ideas that can get us off track. Uh, the pursuit of excellence, like any other worthy goal, has to be done with right values, right motives, and right priorities, because we can, um, we can take any good thing and twist it around and make it something that's not so good. Excellence, biblically speaking, is not perfection. It's not just doing something you know, absolutely perfectly. It's not self-promoting. It's not saying, look at what I can do and how well I can do it in any venue in life. What is that? That's pride. It's arrogance. And pride and arrogance will actually fight against this idea of excellence, although some people will equate the two, and we, we have to separate them. It's not what he's talking about here. Excellence, biblically speaking, is not for us. We don't get the benefit of it. God gets the benefit of it. Because when we do things excellently, we're doing them for a higher cause and a higher purpose. It's like we were talking yesterday in the men's meeting about hard work and about our jobs. And ultimately, our work is a gift from God. But if all we have in our minds is the reward that we're going to get from our work financially, we're going to get a paycheck at the end of this, then we'll approach our work in a certain way. But if we understand that work is a gift from God and we're going to have to call, we're going to have to answer to a higher person for how we do our work, that opens up a whole new world of doing things excellently because we're not just trying to please our boss, we're not just trying to get a raise, we're not just trying to get ahead, we're pleasing ultimately Jesus Christ. And it's a lifelong pursuit. This never changes. We need, to be, we need to understand that we are not going to achieve perfect perfection, total excellence in this life, which means there's always room to grow, which is a good thing. So what is this? What are, what are we talking about? What is excellence? Um, again, as if you look up, I'm, I'm going to give you the dictionary definition. As I read through the dictionary definition, you find that the strict definition in English 
again, is kind of off from where we're talking about biblically, and I'll explain that. Excellence is defined as a state or a quality or a condition of excelling, as you would, as you would surmise. E-X-C-E-L is a part of excellent. Excellence, excel, it's the same word. Uh, or superiority. And even that word superiority, what does it give you as a, as a clue to where this definition is going? Better than. I am comparing myself to somebody else and I am better than that person. So excel in the dictionary is defined as to be better than to surpass, to show superiority, transcend, outdo, outstrip are some of the words that are, uh, are used there. And while the competition aspect of this, or being better than others, is a prominent part of the definition of the word, it's not what we're talking about when we pursue excellence in life. And that, I think, is we can get into that really easily. If you are talented in something, and you know you're talented in something, and you try to get better at it, and you educate yourself, and you practice, and you get better and better, the, the, the trap in that is our own pride, and that the reason we're doing it is simply because we want other people to recognize what we can do. And that is not what is meant, what I'm talking about when we're saying pursue excellence. Success means being the best. Excellence means being your best, and there's a difference. We could all say of pretty much any venue that we wanted to, to call out here, who do you know that's the best architect? Who do you know that's the best singer? Who do you know that's the best writer? Who do you know that's the best uh, basketball player? And, and you probably have names. You could name them. You know, who's the best basketball player of all time? Maybe we'll disagree on that. Wilt Chamberlain? Hmm? No, Michael Jordan. Ah, oh, wait a minute. These guys are the best at what they do, aren't they? I mean, and you could, you could supply any name, but that's, that's not what we're talking about. It's not to a, arrive at some level of achievement in this life where you're recognized by other men. Excellence is taking what God has given you and giving it your all. Putting your whole heart into what you're doing, no matter what it is. Success means being better than everyone else. Excellence means you're better tomorrow than you are today. You're growing. And we're talking specifically now about your faith, your Christian character, how you handle anger, how you handle frustration, you allowing the Spirit of God to produce his fruit in you so that you're more gentle than you were yesterday. You're more forgiving than you were yesterday. This is, this is the mark of Christian growth, and we need to pursue it. Success means exceeding the achievements of other people. Excellence means matching your practice with the potential that God has given to you. And there's a difference. It's not the score at the end that matters. Excellence comes from doing our best, best with what we have, for God's glory alone. I read an illustration, and uh, I, I cannot remember who this was about, so I apologize. But it was two members of the NFL, and I don't know when this happened. I just read it as a story, so I'm assuming it's true. But um, as the story goes, two of the NFL teams were playing their hearts out toward each other. I don't know if it was a playoff game or what. But a reporter remembers coming into the locker room after the game was over and there were two linemen sitting down on the bench in the locker room dripping with sweat 
they're, they're still heaving from, from trying to grasp oxygen. And one of, the, one of the guys lifts his head up to the other. He says, did we win? <laughs> you know, that's the attitude. I'm going to give it my all. He didn't, and apparently he didn't even know who won the game. He was so into it. And it wasn't the score that mattered for him. It was playing all out. It was giving his best and the best that he, that he could have. That's how we need to treat our Christian life. It's all for God's glory. It's not about the scores in this life. It's not about getting brownie points with people. It's not about building your life up to a certain point, gaining financially power, whatever it might be for you. It's about the glory of God, and that's what pursuing excellence is. I'd like to share four principles with you that tell us how this should be done. First, pursuing excellence should not be limited by the nature of the task that's before us. Some of us might be thinking already about a particular job or venue or talent that you might have and say, oh, this is great. You know, I, I enjoy the idea of educating myself and increasing and, and getting better at this. But pursuing excellence is not relegated to one thing. It's everything. It's the little tasks as well as the big ones. Back to 1 Corinthians 10.31, he said, Whatever, therefore, you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. It's not the task that matters. Even eating and drinking, as I was thinking about that, whoever thinks about eating and drinking well? Not me. Maybe what I eat, I like to think about. But the fact, I mean, eating and drinking, is, that's the most mundane thing that you do. You just do it. But how do we do it? And I think that's the point. He's, he's, he's making a, a hyperbole here. Even the, the smallest things that you would never think about, it doesn't matter how I do this. It does matter how I do it. And we need to think that way in our, in our lives. What do you do during the day? What do you do? What's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? How do you spend your morning? What do you do on your way to work? What do you do when you're there? How do you handle conflict and responsibility? How do you handle punctuality? How do you handle responsibility? What do you do on your way home from work? What do you do when you get home to your family? How do you do it? My suggestion, make a list. I live by lists. If you go on my desk right now, you're going to see probably two or three hundred things on lists. And the lists are organized. I know which ones have to be done first and all that. But crazy lists. But lists work. They work for me. Try it. Make a list of everything you do during the day, no matter how small. Do it for a week and make up a list. Get, get kind of your activities of, of your life for the week. And then just ask yourself one at a time, can I do this better? Am I doing this for the glory of God? How can I do this for the glory of God? Mark it down. Challenge yourself. That's what he's talking about. How the task is performed is what matters, not the task itself. You think we'll be judged for the little things? Yes. We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the things done in our body. Not just our work, not just our marriage, not just the things that we, you know, the big things that we have in life, but how we live, the attitude with which we do things. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 talks about this as well. First Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, 
immovable, here's our word again, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And even in the ministry itself, there are things where, I mean, God calls us uh, or describes us as the church as a body. In 1 Corinthians 12, you can go through that. There are parts of the body that are less comely. We're talking about this with the, uh, the students this week in school. Who, who would want to be a foot? Feet are just weird looking. And they get stuffed in shoes all day. And they get walked on and stepped on. And they're, they're dirty and they, they don't smell good most of the time. Who would want to be a foot? I'd rather be an eye. The eye is the window. It's the gate to your soul. The eye reflects knowledge and passion and emotion, wisdom. You can tell what a person's thinking by looking in their eyes. So I'd rather be an eye. The eye is the, it's the most beautiful part of the body, bar none. But take the foot away from the eye, and what have you got? If everybody was an eye, you would just be rolling around, you know? <laughs> you need the foot. You need the nose and the ears, the parts that are weird, so that the parts that don't look so weird can function together. Every, everybody is a part of this, and we need to do it. And so when it comes to ministry, there's all kinds of things that we can do in ministry. Stand up here and preach, okay? It's not just all there is to ministry. It's people. Ministry is about people. It's about what we do. It's how we live. It's how we relate to each other as people. And from the smallest task to the biggest, we need to be pursuing excellence. Second, pursuing excellence is a matter of choosing the best thing. Um, Go back to Philippians chapter 1. Verses 9 and 10. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment so that you may approve things that are excellent. The word approve, it's the Greek word dokimazo, and it means to be able to distinguish between two things and then to choose the better is the idea of the word. It's the idea of discernment or approval. And how do we know? How do we know what's the best thing? We're faced with choices every day, almost every moment of every day. I am faced right now with whether to hurry up and finish or to go past 12 o'clock. I can, I can choose. We choose everything we do. We have a choice on how to do it. What is the best? What is the, what is the way of excellence? This is what this verse is saying, that your love would abound in, in knowledge and discernment so that you can tell the difference between what's good and what's better, and that you would choose the better. The love or the discernment and the knowledge of verse 9, where does that come from? You, know, you may be faced with a choice in life to buy something. You don't know which one to buy. You may be faced with a choice in life about what to do, where to go, how to do this. You know, where do we find the knowledge and the discernment that will give us the understanding to make a good choice? It comes from the scripture comes right directly from God. He shared everything we need to know. 
about making all these decisions. It's all in there. But with the Bible as our, our standard, we then examine, test, and then choose accordingly. The word excellent there in verse 10. Approve things that are excellent. It means literally it's trans, it should be translated the, the things that are different or the things differing from one another. But again, in accordance with what is best. There's, there's a choice. There's discernment. You choose the better of the two or more paths that are in front of you to choose what is excellent based on God's values and priorities. And this means maybe for you or me that the, some things are going to be eliminated that are good because there are better ways. There are better things. So first, excellence should not be limited by the nature of the task. The small things are as important as the big. Second, pursuing excellence is a matter of choosing the best thing according to the values that we learn in the scripture. Third, pursuing excellence is all-inclusive. I kind of mentioned this before. You, you may be thinking about one particular thing in your life, but the word all is used throughout these, these verses. You go back to Ecclesiastes 9.10. I'm just going to quickly flip through them to get through it. It says, whatever your hand finds to do. That includes everything, I think. Whatever you are doing. Whatever you happen to be doing at the moment, whether it's something constructive or not constructive, whether it's something that's active or you're at rest, whatever that thing is, do it with all your might. Everything. It's all-inclusive. You go back to 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether, therefore, you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So it's all-inclusive. That means your job. We were talking yesterday in the men's group about hard work, as I mentioned. That was the uh, chapter we were on and had a lot of interesting conversations come up out of that. I told them at the beginning, this was kind of like preaching to the choir, that the, the chapter was all about being diligent and not being slothful. And for the guys that were there yesterday, that was, I don't think we needed necessarily to hear that message because most of those guys are pretty diligent in their work and all that. But there was some statistical information which was interesting. 45% of people in this country, anyway, hate their jobs. They just, they, they don't like it. They don't like going to work. They don't like getting up in the morning. They don't like their boss. They don't like the people they work for. And they're just discouraged and dissatisfied most of the time. Why is that? And how can that change if that's you? Pursue excellence. In what way? Well, you don't have to give an account to your boss at the end of your life. You have to give an account to God, and God is the one who will judge how we do what we do. So our jobs, our ministries, our family, our hobbies, the things we like to do when we're not doing anything else, recreation, our reading, what do we read, how often do we read, are we learning to read more and better, our response to things, our response to other people. Sometimes people will make decisions that you don't like. How do you respond to that? How do we react when, when somebody offends us? These are things that we should be excelling in more and more. How do we drive? How do we shop? How do we handle our money? How do we handle our relationship to our family, husbands, wives, children? How do we worship together? Everything. 
It's all inclusive, and there's nothing that this doesn't touch. And so it is an all-inclusive thing. Fourth one, pursuing excellence needs to be a wholehearted endeavor. Back in Ecclesiastes 9.10, it said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, your strength. Where does strength come from? It's not just physical strength. He's talking about fortitude, strength of character, attitude. Do it with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, and strength. Same idea. Do it with your might. The one we just read in Matthew 22, Jesus quoted that when he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, is how it's translated in the New Testament. So pursuing excellence is a matter of the heart. It's not just taking another class and getting better at something. It's, some, it's an inner attitude. It involves the mind, the emotions, your, your will, the whole person that God has made you to be. The Proverbs in particular, Pastor Dan's going through them on Sunday nights, the Proverbs in particular and many of the teachings of Jesus Christ clearly teach this that life is a matter of the heart. It's not just strict obedience to a set of laws or a code. Um, uh, Turn with me just for a minute to Matthew 5. This is better known as the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with the Beatitudes and then morphs into some real hard stuff for us to learn about how we need to live. Jesus uses phrases that repeat themselves over and over again in this sermon. He starts in verse 20 with the idea that our our righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes outwardly were as righteous as you get. And for him to say, you need to do more than what they're doing is almost an impossibility because they had the outward life down. They knew how to make it look like they were pleasing God in every way of their life. But what was he talking about? It was not their outward works. It was their heart. And he gets, he gets into that very clearly as you go into these next verses where you see the pattern. Verse 21, he says, you have heard. And then he quotes a law. Verse 22, but I say unto you. And then he explains the law. And every time he explains the law, he's dealing with an issue of the heart. For example, that first one, you've heard that you shall not commit murder. Everybody knows that. But I say unto you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. That's a hard issue. Murder's a physical thing. Obviously, we can't take the life of another person, but he's saying murder's not the deal. It's what causes the murder in the first place that the law is addressing, which is your heart and your ability to handle anger. Verse 27, you have heard that it's been said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say unto you, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery already in your heart. It's the heart issue that he's talking about. And that's repeated all through the chapter. Verse 33, you have heard. Verse 34, but I say. Verse 38, you have heard. Verse 39, but I say. Verse 43, you have heard. Verse 44, but I say. And each time he says, he's reflecting back on the heart. And so pursuing excellence is a matter of the heart. 
It's not an outward thing. It's how we do it. It's our attitude that we carry with us in life and how we pursue what we're going to pursue. So the primary means to pursue excellence is to guard our heart first, to keep certain things in our heart. How do we protect our heart? We read the scripture. We pray. We encourage ourselves in the Lord with the word of God. We go back to God and drink from him on a daily basis. And we keep our heart connected to him. It's a heart thing. And then we, what do we keep from our hearts? The things that are going to keep us from excellence, whatever it might be. It could be laziness. Half-heartedness should have no place in our life. Drifting along. I'm just going to do enough to get by. That's all I really care about. Go with the flow. That mentality has no place in our Christian growth. What we have, excel even more. The opposite of that, I guess, would be the lust for power, for prestige, for property, wealth, the, the praise of men. Keep that from your heart as well. Keep your heart centered on what God wants you to do. What about relaxation, you might ask? Is it okay if we just take a break and rest? Of course. You know, we need to rest. It's essential. God worked six days, and on the seventh day... Did God need to rest? No. Why did God rest? He rested as a plan and a pattern for us because he knew we would need it. And so he says, work your six days, and on the seventh day, rest. Take it off. We all need sleep at night. We all need time to, to unwind to varying degrees, and you need to know yourself. It's not wrong. It's not laziness, as long as it doesn't become an excuse for laziness. You know? So... Keep those extremes away from your heart. Keep the ex on one extreme just wanting to do nothing, and on the other, other extreme wanting to go so far and so fast ahead that people recognize you and you get the praise of men. Some, somewhere in the middle there is where God wants us to be, to be pursuing excellence. The motives for the pursuit of excellence, what are they? Number one, absolutely and every time, it's the glory of God. Be reminded of what the glory of God is. God's glory is who he is. And every time we do something where we don't represent what he would do, we're not glorifying him. Tis true. That's why they call the American flag old glory. Why? Because the glory of the flag is the glory of our country. It's everything that we are as a people. It's our freedom. It's our ability to own property. It's our government. It's our life. The pursuit of happiness in this country. It's all wrapped up in the flag. That's, what we, that's, that's why it's there. It's a representative of what we are, old glory. Can we be a flag for God so that when people see us, they see everything that represents God in us? The frivolous pursuits, the angry responses, the selfishness that we often, that has nothing to do with God. So recognize it and realize that the glory of God needs to be the motivation for our pursuit. Second motivation, which really gets me going, is time. I'm about halfway done with my life, statistically speaking. First half is over. Second half is about to begin. Or it might be almost all over. You just don't know. 
how many days you have on this earth. But what did, what did Ecclesiastes say? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Why? Because there's no planning. There's no executing of those plans. There's nothing in the grave. We have this time and this time alone. Ephesians chapter 5 says, be wise and discerning, redeeming the time, because the days are short. Today is the day of salvation. The night is fast coming, and we all have just a certain amount of time. A third motivation for pursuing excellence would be eternal reward. I've thought about this one a lot because it seems to me like seeking God's reward for things is sort of selfish in itself, isn't it? I'm doing this because I want God to reward me, but it's not. It's actually a good motivation, and it's a right motivation. It's the same idea as God glorifying himself. I remember the first time I heard that when I was a new believer, that, that God does everything for his own glory, and I thought, wow, how selfish. And then I thought, that's not right. God's the only one that can do that, and he should because he's God. He's allowed to do that. And I think for, for us as Christians, how many times has God told us in the New Testament that we will be rewarded, we will be recompensed for the things that are done in the body. We can expect that, and it's a good thing. And we should look forward to the rewards in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about the gold, silver, and precious stones, or the wood, hay, and stubble. It's all going to go through the fire. And if whatever comes out at the other end, if it lasts, you will be rewarded with that. All the other stuff is going to go away and be burnt up. It begins and ends with our attitude. Pursue excellence in what you do. It is so important to not get to the point where you just give up and say, I've done enough. I'm here. I'm satisfied with the way that my life is. Look at those verses. Let them speak to you. That Wherever you are, excel even more. Abound even more. Let it be done in the little tasks and the big tasks. Let it be done with your whole heart. Let it be done with everything in your life. And let it start right here in the heart, because that's where it has to be. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words that you give to us in the scripture, and just pray that you would melt them into our minds and our hearts this morning. Pray that we would heed the warnings that are given to us, and obey the commands and the principles that you give to us so that our lives will continue to change for your glory every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.